0: This is Yudaha Kohen, Grit Chazon, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and or Spotify. And if you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review. It helps us reach more people and get these ideas out to a wider audience. Now, I'm here today with a comrade for quite some time, almost a decade, Leonessia.
1: It's hard to believe it's almost a decade.
0: So I actually met Leah when she was a freshman in college and she was on one of these like Israel advocacy trips to Israel and I met her in Hebron. Hebron. I gave a tour of Hebron that <laughs> the organization that brought her, I guess they expected me to say one thing and I said another.
1: I don't know about that I actually think that they expected you to say exactly what you said. Really? But it yes. was the
0: last time they brought me for years. There was a decision that...
1: Maybe they just found a better crazy Chevron <laughs> representative. Uh,
0: I don't know. I think I was crazy in a way that they didn't expect. I was crazy in a way that they weren't looking for.
1: That's possible.
0: Yeah. So. Um, you
1: did manage to poach a few participants, so maybe that was unforeseen <laughs> or undesired. Yeah,
0: I'm not sure if they even knew about that. Like, I'm not sure if they knew right away that you got involved with us. Yeah. So, when you were in college, you were really involved in this Israel advocacy Hasbara community. Mm-hmm. Uh, which essentially is the different organizations that defend Israel on campus. Let's say, defend Israel's reputation on campus. Uh, is that a good way of I think putting so, it? that's
1: how they would self-define, which is always an important thing to consider. Okay,
0: well, how would you define
1: them? How would I define their role on campus? I think that they are the first go-to. I think that they're like the natural draw of any kid who grew up in a Jewish community. And it's like an extension of Hillel. It's just where you would go first. I
0: think, mm, and if you're interested in Israel?
1: Not even necessarily interested. You're like peripherally willing to be involved. You think that it's maybe maybe it's your job to be to some extent a participant in it. Maybe I mean, it's your a job, social like thing. your
0: responsibility, or like yeah, a like you were job. raised
1: in a certain way, and you know you think that it's at least somewhat important for you. You don't necessarily want to be the president of the group. You don't want to organize an mm-hmm. event, but you'll go.
0: You want to be involved in pro-Israel stuff.
1: Yeah. Okay. And I'm not even sure that I would say want to be, but just like you feel like you should. You're I think sure. a lot of kids are like, I, I should do that.
0: Right. you're saying, My well, mom would be pleased. If I do something Israel-related.
1: And if it's not too inconvenient. I don't have anything else going on that night. And they're giving a free meal. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that's most participants.
0: In, and in- they give
1: the perfect, like, par of option for you to do that. Like, it's not too risque. It's mm-hmm. It's fine.
0: Well, I think it is to the rest of the campus, I mean...
1: No, I'm saying from the mindset of the people that they're trying to Right.
0: It's consistent with the social and political norms of the mainstream Jewish community in America. Yeah.
1: If anyone found out that I was there, that wouldn't be an issue. If anything, my grandma would be pleased, and Mm -hmm. that's pretty much the beginning and end of it.
0: Okay. Okay. So you were part of this Israel advocacy community. You worked for a number of the organizations. You were like a representative on campus for a number of these, like, Hasbara organizations. Yeah. And then you came on this trip...
1: Honestly, I, as a college student, was always looking for a free trip to Israel, and that mm. was something that they were offering. Okay. That was my draw to the group. hmm Um... That was a okay. big
0: one. <laughs> Did you feel that in these different organizations, you were provided with intellectually stimulating discussions about Israel, Middle Eastern political issues, Jewish identity, Jewish history? No, honestly, Jewish destiny? I,
1: no. I don't even think that those were like relevant questions that were being asked by the participants, nor were they being provided by the organizers. And you can see it in the um, materials that they give to their students. They're like, "This is the easiest, most like, even, I mean, I remember, like, there would be little packets that would be, like, 10, like, easy answers to difficult questions. And I don't think that that's necessarily the way that it should be approached. I don't think you should be looking for the easiest answer or the answer in the fewest words, like how you get a, you know, an elevator pitch for a 3,000-year-old justification for a country. There's, that did not it shouldn't be able to be diluted down to the so, lowest so common denominator.
0: Why is that the approach?
1: First of all I think that it's a lack of respect for the students. I think that they think that if they make it any more complicated than in one sentence they're gonna lose them and maybe that's true for the majority of them who are just going for the free meal but if that's your target audience then if you're looking for the masses then that's what you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. But you're not gonna get a very engaged group of people they're going to come to an event for a free meal and they're not going to come back or they're going to, you know, sign up for the mailing list, but they're not in any substantive way going to be committed to a cause because you're not giving them a cause to be committed to.
0: So you're saying that the Hasbara community, the Israel advocacy community, is not providing students with a cause to fight for?
1: Yeah. I don't think that's even what they're trying to do. I mean, maybe, obviously, not consciously. They wouldn't say that that's not what they're trying to do. But I think that if you propose to them a more complex or nuanced ideology or foundation they would say no we're going to lose the students like they're so preoccupied with getting the masses that they don't realize that what they're giving is so dense that even anyone with any interest in anything deeper is going to be so turned off by that that you're Mm. losing the people who actually matter or who would be committed or who would be like passionate
0: because there's nothing
1: to be passionate about it's so superficial. Well I
0: I think what I see is them working to present Israel as a good guy in a G-rated movie, you know, and and wanting to win over as many undecideds in the middle between the pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian communities through presenting Israel as a good guy in a G-rated movie.
1: I agree. I don't even even necessarily think that the G-rated movie, that was the most important part. I think that it's the simplicity to them that's the most important part. We just have to make this super simple. There's a good guy and a bad guy. Yeah, like the bad guy's super violent, so maybe it's not even a G-rated movie, but like
0: you don't think the pro-Palestinian community also simplifies it and just makes it a clear-cut good guy and a bad guy?
1: To be fair, I never worked for their organizations, but I I do think that they, um, you know, what maybe it is an oversimplification on their end as well. But I think that at least they're in touch with the discussion that's going on beyond their own group. Mm-hmm. So, like, at least they're able to communicate in a way that's not just relevant to the people who already agree with them. Mm-hmm they're speaking to leftists, they're speaking to the Me Too movement, they're speaking to things that like people care about and saying, hey, this fits into the conversation that you're already having like as Intersex. opposed to, yeah. They're not just giving like these random sound bites that nobody is talking about.
0: I also think it's a little bit suspicious when a campus organization seems to exist for the sole purpose of defending the reputation and policies of a very specific nation-state, like as opposed to fighting to make a change in the world. I think most activist groups on campuses are fighting to make a change in the world, fighting to end an injustice, fighting to change something somewhere, or raise awareness for atrocities taking place that people should know about and people should want to stop. And then you have this organization or group of organizations which seem to just be about defending the policies of a specific nation-state. And if that was happening, let's say, if there was a group on campus that was just trying to defend the reputation of South Korea, I would be very suspicious. I would just assume that they're agents of the South Korean state. And I think that a lot of people who are activists on campus see the Hasbro community and make the assumption that these are all, on some level, agents of the Israeli state.
1: I think it's also, like, what I was saying, like, in terms of, fitting yourself into a discussion for better or for worse we live in a culture where like being the most offended often gets you points Mm -hmm. or being like the underdog gets you points and they're easy points to get and i think a lot of times it doesn't have a lot of substance behind it But I think that you do have to acknowledge the fact that that is the culture you're speaking of. So when you're saying like, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, let's keep it the way it is, you already sound a little suspicious to a group that's so inherently looking for who we can defend and who we can empower.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you mean the way it is? You mean just like defending the status quo?
1: Yeah. I think when you're saying like, no, this is how it should be and we should keep it make sure that, like you're saying, like to defend something that exists, Mm -hmm. that already... Looks suspicious to a society the, that is very focused on empowering.
0: Right. The goal from the perspective of the Hasbrah community seems to be a nonviolent version of the status quo yes. in Israel. Right. So they're not
1: fighting for anything right, or they just to, want
0: Palestinians to stop fighting.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Like they're not fighting for anything, but they would like the Palestinians to stop fighting. Exactly.
1: And what you're looking at like under when the Palestinian or the SJP is speaking about empowering a group that has been subjugated or has been the victim of various, you know, layers of colonization or different mistreatments or like violations of human rights, all those things. And you're saying like, no, let's keep it this way. (laughs) In a culture where we're constantly talking about people who are disenfranchised, it seems very obvious who's gonna win that argument.
0: Right, but let's keep it this way, but look at our cherry tomatoes and look at... Then uh, that's
1: what—that's also what I mean by, like, you're speaking in this weird, like, sound bites that nobody cares about. Nobody's having that conversation. Nobody's saying, like, who made the best cherry tomato. <sighs> like, you're winning an argument that nobody's having.
0: Well, I think they're attempting to show that Israel contributes something to the world that people should be grateful for and therefore not care but about this other thing. That's not this where the points thing. come
1: from. That's what mm. I'm saying. Like it's not like you're not listening to the convert not you but like the people who are making those arguments are not listening to the conversation the groups you're involved going- with. Because
0: I was never part of those organizations. Yeah, totally. Are- no
1: the people who paid me <laughs> <laughs>
0: right.
1: but those groups are not listening to the conversations have being had around them. So mm. the points that they think they're scoring on these weird like I don't know, like this whole we're contributing, that's not what people are talking about. Nobody's asking who contributes the most and that's who has a legitimate claim to land or a legitimate Mm. state claim. People are saying, like, who deserves this because of, you know, fighting injustice or who is being disenfranchised. And Mm. meanwhile, we're saying, no, but look at how great, like...
0: Or we can point to some, like, ridiculous international document that gave us a legal right according to whatever international law means, you know, to a state in our land. But, you know, at the end of the day, what... You know, they say in uh, San Remo at the League of Nations or in New York at the United Nations about what the borders of our country should be or to, or who has a right to which land in the Middle East means nothing because at the end of the day, like my question is, who are they to decide what people get self determination in the Middle East? It's a bad question. Right? Yeah. It just to me feels like that when we talk about international law in terms of people's rights to countries and borders, it it just seems like colonial imposition. Yeah. One
1: hundred percent. You're also talking. You're referencing a time when it was colonization, like
0: mm-hmm. colon, it, well, like it, it was, totally was that when the British and French were so actually colonizing. So if you're, you're
1: tying your legitimacy to a time and place when they were totally colonizing, that's and already the, problematic. And the ultimate
0: colonizers said that we have a right to. Yeah, they
1: said we could do it. Well, they were doing like the worst, you know, violations of. Humanity. rights ever really you're going to like use them as your frame Mm -hmm. of reference
0: so uh, I'll say from my perspective I know that you're no longer involved in any of these organizations Mm -hmm. but one thing that I see happening is a shift I think that there has been some self-correction in some of these organizations and what I would attribute that to would be activists or like students who got involved with these organizations who actually cared enough about Israel or Jewish identity or Jewish history to like want to be part of it despite the flaws. Yeah. Some of these students who've actually been on campus took leadership roles, Mm -hmm. meaning it used to be that these organizations were kind of like run top-down from mainstream Jewish institutions that saw there's like a problem on campus. People are saying mean things about Israel and we have to create a group to defend Israel. They would want these groups to kind of toe a line that, like you said, would just be like super vanilla and super parv and not even having the conversations that people in the activist community are looking to have. But once students were actually involved in this, you know, worked their way up the ladders of some of these organizations and attained positions of responsibility and had the experiences of being on campus and understand how irrelevant a lot of these talking points and messages were. I think there became a, a much more open approach and a larger willingness to explore some of the more difficult topics and have more nuanced conversations and to even take you know a more critical look at certain issues.
1: I think that is totally true. I also think that. Watching the students who were turned off by this be drawn to problematic organizations that were giving them more nuanced Mm -hmm. answers to their difficult questions forced the Hasbara industry, those organizations, to respond by creating a more nuanced answer Mm -hmm. that wasn't super problematic. And for me personally, like many of my contemporaries, the shallowness of the answers being provided by the Hasbara industry pushed me away and repulsed me from that institution. Where some of my friends would be pushed into groups like If Not Now or J uh, Street or things like that, which were providing more nuanced answers, I was pushed more into Breed Hazon, which was a very different trajectory.
0: In what sense? Jewish national aspirations?
1: I mean, I think in the same way, I was looking for something more complex, more mm-hmm. deep, more con- like contextualized, mm-hmm. as opposed to random sound bites that had no context or depth. Mm -hmm. But I think that for me, Breit Hazon offered answers that were more in line with what I thought or believed to be true or made sense to me as opposed to those other, the alternative.
0: Organizations that are considered more problematic in the Jewish world.
1: I think you're also considered problematic in the Jewish world.
0: And what would you say the differences were between J Street and Brit Hazon?
1: (laughs) Well actually I think that it's interesting to look at the similarities that they do honestly, they, they give more of an answer. They're J. willing Street. to have difficult questions. Yes. Right. J Street is willing to have difficult
0: discussions, although I think their conclusions are often vapid.
1: No, I completely agree. And I think that if you look a little deeper, then they're not much more nuanced or in touch with a really sincere sense of Jewish history, Jewish identity, but they are willing to have difficult conversations. So I'll right. give them that. And I also think that more importantly, Breed Hazon and uh, Jay Street and the like are in touch with the conversation that's going on. Like, one thing that J Street is doing is it's listening to what other groups are talking about and speaking in the same language or speaking about the same issues. And so it's easier to communicate the message that they're perpetuating beyond the strictly like Hasbara community, whereas Hasbara, it's pretty much just begins and ends with their own supporters.
0: Like talking to themselves, it's like an echo chamber. Exactly. Whereas J Street, you is actually at
1: least I can have a conversation with someone who isn't in J Street, and they might agree. Mm -hmm. It might not be the right person who I want to agree with me, but at least I'm able to have a conversation and say things that resonate with other communities because we're having the same conversation, as opposed to, like that's one place and upon or one point upon which they succeed, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. I, temporarily, I think what what I've seen happen in J Street, U from the outside, I'm not, I've, you know, I've never been part of J Street. U. honestly, J neither J have
1: I. <laughs> right,
0: and and you know, I, I think their real problem is their kind of religious commitment to a two state solution. Yeah. Especially in this time in history where it's so clear that the two state solution hasn't worked and, and can't work and won't work, and in my opinion shouldn't work, and doesn't really meet the aspirations or grievances of Jews or Palestinians on the ground, J Street. Seems to still be fanatically committed to this as a policy and the only policy that could work. You know, I've always had trouble looking at J Street as anything other than a Jewish mouthpiece for American policies in the Middle East.
1: Totally. But I don't think that in every circle that's wrong. I mean, it's becoming increasingly unpopular, mm-hmm. but I still think that, like, there are definitely communities in which that point is okay and safe and, like, whatever to articulate. <laughs> It, it's a little bit less ridiculous than the Hasbara. I mean, yes, than the Hezbollah.
0: Right. So, so I think a lot of people end up believing J Street U. The people who, like, you know, they go through J Street U, they're exposed to the Palestinian narrative, they see that the story is actually not a G-rated movie, and it's not just good Israelis against evil Palestinians. But once they become more engaged with Palestinians on the ground, they realize that this two-state solution isn't really going to work or help anyone.
1: I think that when you're talking about on and campus. And then J
0: Street doesn't have a place for them anymore. Yes. Like meaning once once somebody is disillusioned, once a J Street U student is disillusioned with a two state solution, there's not really space for them anymore.
1: No, that's totally true. I think though that we always have to remember that we're talking about campus mm-hmm. students. They have a finite time that they're there and they have a finite amount of time that they're willing to commit to this issue. And that's gonna vary from person to person. So like if I'm willing and also like what my aspirations are. Like, if I want to be a professional in many contexts, J Street is a safe place that I can put... Like, I'm not embarrassed or concerned about having been associated with this organization. It seems to be in touch with American values. It seems to be... Certainly um,
0: American Middle East policies.
1: Totally. So, like, if I am thinking I want to be a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or whatever, and I'm concerned that someone's going to Google my name or something and I was associated with this organization or I was even the president of this organization when I was on campus, that's fine. Mm-hmm. like I'm not worried about that. Whereas I think that if I'm more, like you're saying, like I'm disillusioned by that and I'm looking for something deeper and something a little, maybe even, dare I say, radical um, or revolutionary which I think some people are drawn to, that's a certain personality type already, that you're like looking for something more. They might go to something like Breed Hazón.
0: I think most people who get disillusioned with J Street end up going to organizations like If Not Now.
1: Yeah, 100%. Right. But I think that once you join an If Not Now, first of all, you're a certain type of person who is looking for something more and like, Mm -hmm. like a lot of people are just satisfied, like, oh, yeah, I didn't stay in the Hasbara and like, and it's only four years that I'm there. I don't want to make this my career. I have other aspirations. I have a major. I have finals coming up. You know, those kind of things are going to take priority for most students. And feeling like I worked for Justice peripherally while on campus and then got a job, that's usually enough for most people. Mm -hmm. They're not looking for anything more. And certainly not something that's going to ruin their other aspirations. Whereas there are people who do want more like who and,
0: and you you feel first of all you feel that involvement in groups like Brit or if not now could actually ruin a person's career opportunities
1: I think that it, it really depends on what the person is looking for and I think that for some people it shows that you are a intellectual who goes beyond and who I think it like even for, like, it's a status thing in a positive way in some groups but those are very specific groups mm-hmm. in mainstream Normal. I mean, like, you don't want to be seen at a rally, whether or not it was, if not now, or Breed has own. Like, there's certain social circles where that would be seen as negative, and some where that would be seen as positive, and a lot of it is how you self-identify.
0: So, where were you coming from that you even got involved in the Israel advocacy world when you got to college?
1: For me, and I think a lot of the people who I had in my own organization, um, I came from a conservative day school, mm-hmm. conservative high school. I didn't go to Jewish summer camp, but that was a, definitely a common feature amongst the members of my group, youth groups, the standard. <laughs>
0: right. So you grew up in the conservative Jewish movement.
1: hmm
0: And uh, good experiences enough that you wanted to be involved in Israel when you got to campus.
1: It seemed like a no-brainer, honestly. Right. And I, mean, I think that's, that's how it is for a lot of kids.
0: That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Right. Well, how do you feel? I know that, you know, a number of years ago you made Aliyah, you moved to Israel. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that creates friction in Israeli society is the attempt of, let's say, the conservative movement, reform movement, etc., these kind of like very American Jewish denominations, very diaspora Jewish denominations, to fight for representation and fight for control in Israeli society. How do you relate to that as somebody who comes from the conservative Jewish movement?
1: I think it's really interesting how supportive people are of Aliyah how they're really pushing for... Like, when you are when you say you're in Olah Shah, like, you have this majestic sense of, wow, like, I know what you sacrificed, I know what you um, could have had if you were in America, and they idealize America a lot. I think that they think that, you know, the roads are paved, roads are paved in gold.
0: Jews think, the Israelis think. Yeah,
1: for sure. and Especially ones who've never been here. So they think, like, wow, for you to have given up all of that and to be here, that's so great, but at the same time, I think that... Um, they also push back against those impositions of this, like, weird foreignness. They're like, you're here now, you're home, and that's great, and you've acknowledged that by making Aliyah, so why are you trying to... Yeah, exactly. So, like, why aren't you doing that in a more whole, like, um, I don't know, Like, why aren't you internalizing what you clearly know to be true, because you came, like, Mm -hmm. you were willing to give all that up, why are you bringing with you these pieces of diaspora that are clearly no longer relevant or even sensible.
0: Well, why would you say they're no longer relevant or sensible? Like, why do they not make... Like, why would something like your Solomon Schechter upbringing be more relevant to the American Jew than to the Israeli?
1: I mean, I think that understanding why they don't make sense takes a little bit of historical understanding of where those movements came from. So I think that... um, all three movements, but I can speak mostly on behalf of, you know, the conservative and kind of the reformed. I'm, I've never been to a reformed synagogue, but there were definitely reformed kids in my school, so mm-hmm. I think that like, they probably have a similar experience. Um, I think that those uh, branches of Judaism... Those are, denominations. Yeah, those denominations... Were created in a specific time and place where they were necessary means of being Jewish and reconciling that identity with a host a host culture,
0: a host culture that wasn't ours. Yeah, like in the exact. exactly.
1: So if you're whether it was Germany or whether it was America or honestly, I'm sure it was true for a lot of other countries, but Germany and America were the predominant ones and mm. where those uh, movements really developed. Exactly. So using those as really the archetypal developments of the institutions themselves, I think that. It was a way to accommodate and to, um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't want. I don't want to say completely. Um, to there was a desire to fit in, mm-hmm. and also in a Germany. desire to preserve, right. and and also in America. And I mm-hmm. think that in in order to do that, we had to be willing to be a little flexible about some things and to make Aspects conciliations. But also, it wasn't... That's not to say that they threw away everything. That's that's to say that there were certain things that were important and we were going to keep those. Mm-hmm. And certain things we were willing to bend a little bit on and certain things we were willing to forsake altogether.
0: And they Germanized and Americanized the Jewish yeah. culture. And
1: you can see, like, distinct... It's not just that we were willing to let go of things. We were willing to change them in a way that made more sense for the host culture. Mm-hmm. So in a way do- that, like like, as a kid... When I was growing up, like, I mean, the way that we kept Shabbat would be in a way that you could also participate in things that were important to you as an American kid growing up in the suburbs and you wanted to do AYSO soccer. You know, like, there were just things that, like, you wanted to be a part of the host culture, which was obviously not going to accommodate you and your Shabbat observance. And also you wanted to be true to being a Jew in America. So there was a distinct identity that emerged from that desire to um, reconcile those two identities.
0: And then when brought to
1: Israel? It just doesn't make any sense <laughs> because you're no longer the host cult. The host, you don't have to accommodate a host culture that's different from your own. Right. Host culture is the thing that you um, were originally, you know, the right. thing that like doesn't need any accommodation.
0: Just be a full Jew. Exactly. And not have to Americanize or Germanize your identity.
1: 100%.
0: Right. It's, it's funny. You know, I look at all these denominations, you know, I, I mean, first of all, I would say that even the contextualization or categorization of Jewish identity as a religious identity is a relatively recent phenomenon. I think that, you know, we actually, the Jewish people, the children of Israel, clearly predate all of these social constructs like race, religion, ethnicity, culture, or, you know, in fact, it's the closest thing to what we are is probably... Civilization, kind of Mm -hmm. like the Aztecs or the Mayans, you know, that has a spiritual component and a national component and a legal component and a territorial component, but it's so much more than the sum of those parts. Obviously, when our civilization was destroyed and we went into exile roughly 2,000 years ago, our identity was shrunk. And it, it was only a couple hundred years ago during the Enlightenment period that Jews in places like Germany or France or or wherever were offered civil rights and inclusion into the host culture in exchange for their national identity, in exchange for kind of redefining themselves not as refugees from the Middle East wanting to go back to Frenchmen with a Jewish religion or Germans with a Jewish religion. It was very easy and very convenient to kind of like redefine or rebrand, repackage Jewish identity as a just my religious identity, whereas in my daily life I'm a German. And it kind of feels like the Jewish denominations that emerged in the wake of that, like orthodox, conservative, reform, or orthodox and reform were like the first ones, but then later conservative and reconstructionist and whatever else exists now, it, it in many ways kind of feels like the Christianization of Jewish identity, because you know this all of course emerged in a Western context, You know, once we're redefining ourselves as a religion, well, what's the dominant religion we're all experiencing? That's Christianity. And Christianity has all of these different denominations, like Catholic and Methodist and uh, Baptist, Evangelical, whatever. So suddenly Jews say, well, we have all these things too. We have these denominations also. So that's really a far cry from the original culture we left behind and the culture we're very much returning to, I think, in the land of Israel, the attempt to like impose these kind of like western denominations of Jewish identity onto Israeli society is just westernization.
1: I have no problem with someone who understands that entire history and says listen like it's important to me that like a, a good example of it is when I, at the Tubishvat seder you pointed out that back in the day like when we, originally it would have been like a fresh fruit a fig or something that wasn't in All, eastern oh, bakes,
0: europe. F- figs, yeah. All these
1: different kinds of fruits that wouldn't be in eastern europe so when we went there we had to start eating them dried. Mm-hmm. And now when we're back in Israel where we do have access to the fresh version of it we're still eating the dried fruit it doesn't make any sense because you have access to that.
0: Right. I happen to prefer the taste of the dried dates. Okay, so to the wait, fresh so, date.
1: so that's actually your perfect. Point. That I'm is so your glad point. that you say that because you understand the history, you understand the development, the evolution, the nonsensicalness perhaps even of it. And yet you can say, you know what, I'm making a conscious decision. But the problem that I have is the not conscious, like the unconscious just acceptance saying this is what Jews always did or this is the group that I've always been a part of since the beginning of time. That wasn't a group, you know what I mean? And you have to understand where your group comes from and what kinds of sacrifices were made in order to create that identity. And if you decide that that's important to me because it's like what makes me feel connected or it's what my family does or I feel like I'm being honest to the traditions that my parents you know instilled in me whatever that's fine the same way that you can say I prefer the dried fruit mm-hmm. but just be honest about it and to understand where it came from
0: and not try to impose it on Israeli society yeah. in such a public way like meaning even these fights over the western wall
1: yeah like understand your place and I'd say that I have a place or that in my home you know we're going to eat the dried fruit because that's what we prefer or we're going to you know do the same things that my you know great great grandparents did in the shtetl, but understand that there's a reason that it happened in a shtetl, and understand where it came from. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and that don't... is not necessarily like healthy, vibrant Jewish national life. Yeah.
1: And also that it doesn't necessarily belong in Israel, but you're bringing it there as someone who's coming to it. Mm-hmm. The same way that I don't nec- I do not. I think that it's a very call of homer thing. Like I think that with the uh, Thanksgiving, because so, Thanksgiving is so obviously not Israeli, and anyone who came there knows that that's not true and and nobody is sitting there thinking like this makes sense because of the pilgrims in Israel but you're doing it because you're like you know what like it just kind of feels weird not to do it and like that's okay like that's totally maybe we phase it out a little bit but like for me coming and I'm new and I just like if it's important to me then maybe that's something that's important. But I feel like we're more honest about those yeah, things that are really, very obvious. I, I'm
0: not for the observance of Thanksgiving. No, what
1: I'm saying, though, is that there might be a place for the phasing out, just mm-hmm. for the transitionatory like, process. But I don't think that... I think it's dangerous to say, like, we need to create this space and this institution in Israel. There's a difference, I think.
0: Right, fighting for your version of Jewish identity to be dominant or public yeah. or... Right.
1: I think that like it's okay to say like I'm transitioning into being Israeli, but I think that that's an important thing to acknowledge, You mm-hmm. know that there's an Israeli or Jewish identity ideal that we are striving towards, and you making Aliyah was part of that, and you becoming more integrated in the society that exists is part of that, and it is a process. I acknowledge that, and maybe the first year that you come back, that means eating a turkey on the last Thursday of Thanksgiving, and that's fine, but understand that you're part of a process, and making Aliyah is not the end of it.
0: Right, it also seems like the divisions in Israeli society are so much different than these, like, kind of Western denominations.
1: 100%. I think that also, like, I remember a lot of my friends when I made Aliyah, because I lived in Jerusalem, a lot of them were, like, ve- they were Israeli, who would never been to America. And it was very difficult to explain to them the spectrum that I was so familiar with in mm-hmm. terms of, like, levels of observance, because that's kind of how it is. And then, like, it's just, like, kind of how true you are, to and how much you're willing to accommodate the host culture, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Israelis, a lot of them, I think, like, the concept of Masorti really demonstrates a totally, di- like, a total divergence from that spectrum.
0: Right. Because in Israel, the word Masorti means something specific. Yeah. And then the conservative movement from They're like, America. Well, they like, <laughs> Right. So the, the American conservative movement, like, kind of comes to Israel and calls itself Masorti in order yeah. to claim all those people as its members or its and adherents. And
1: it's so different. And, like... I think that when we keep trying to superimpose our ideas of the spectrum and then just put their terms into our Mm -hmm. spectrum, that's what's It's an interesting trick
0: to just yeah. kind of like see that the majority of Israeli society kind of identifies as T, so we're going to call ourselves
1: And they also don't even under, like Israelis don't get what you're talking about uh-huh. when you're saying these things. And like, because to them, like, like with Masorti, a lot of my friends who are Masorti, like they totally didn't keep the rules, the halachic rules, but they would acknowledge that those were the rules. Like they, they wouldn't go to shul, but if they go to shul, they go to a shul that, you know, has a mechitza. Like they, of course, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's not what conservative is. Conservative people might go to shul every single week, but they're willing to forsake a lot of the more halachic like standards. Or,
0: cha- or say they
1: changed. Yeah, and or, and to and to do so openly. Right. But that's not something that a Masorti person would do. An they would, would acknowledge Masorti them and then not would. do it.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. So so it, it's like a an Israeli Masorti... Couple might show up to a synagogue that's calling itself sortie that's connected to the American Conservative Movement and be shocked at what they see when they walk in the door.
1: I mean, they might be shocked that everyone's even there because a lot of Masorti people don't go to shul every week. Right, that's but that's what makes me Masorti, That I yeah, exactly. Go. I don't go, but if I did, I'd go to the right one. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like other ones that are following the rules. And then they'd be shocked to find that like what is calling itself Masorti. But I just think that's also like a lack of understanding on both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you go there, you should probably make an effort to understand what they're talking about when they're saying that word, (laughs) instead of just trying to define it based on your own spectrum. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, in the Hasbro community, in the Israel advocacy community, to what extent do you feel the organizations really go into, like, Jewish history, like Zionism... What took place before the state? How, how much of an education do you feel you received from these organizations and institutions when you were involved with them?
1: They really didn't, I don't think, touch on that too much.
0: Well, wouldn't that be relevant?
1: You would think, but it didn't really seem relevant. When you're just trying to like, perpetuate talking points, That to, there's no context, really.
0: Mm-hmm. So were you interested in studying or going deeper into any of these issues?
1: I mean, I made Aliyah after graduation and got a master's degree in Israeli politics. <laughs> you, had, you have a master's so, degree now yeah. in Israeli politics. Yes. Okay. From Hebrew University. From Hebrew University, University. okay. So, obviously, personally, I was interested, but I wouldn't say that's necessarily common. I Uh didn't have any, you know, classmates who came with me.
0: So, it's not that you feel that the Israel advocacy organizations are, like, lying about history. They just don't know it. They just don't talk about it.
1: They just don't care. Yeah, it's just not relevant. They don't care? To teach it, I mean. They don't want to make it too complicated.
0: They want to keep everything simple. Yes. Were there things that you learned in your master's program at Hebrew U that kind of debunked a lot of the Hasbrat talking points that you had before that?
1: No, we really did invent the cherry tomato.
0: Okay. And that's...
1: <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't like, they were just isolated facts that were irrelevant. I don't think it ever came up, the cherry tomato at Hebrew University. Nobody cares and uh-huh. is aware of that, but like they weren't debunked, I wouldn't say.
0: I don't know. I guess I just find it hard to believe that these organizations don't go into like at least a very simplistic you know, g G-rated version of Israeli history.
1: They might give you the points, like, when, a lot of it's, like, responsive. Mm-hmm. So they'll say, like, when a Palestinian tells you that, you know, he has a claim to the land because of X, Y, and Z, you should tell them all about the Balfour Declaration. Like, they would say something like that.
0: About this British imperialist yeah, exactly. who decided to gift us a state. Yeah, exactly.
1: hundred hundred percent. Or they would say, steer clear of this one, because that one, you know, was not a great day for us. Like they, I mean, they would contextualize it in a way as a response, but not in a way like, here's a holistic story of your own like people.
0: A, a timeline of, like, who Herzl was and, you know, when we fought the British. Or, it probably
1: varies from organization to organization, I would right. say. Like, I don't want to speak the, on behalf of all of them and say nobody ever mentioned it. I'm just saying that, like, that's right. not the point. The point is, like, we don't want to make it too complicated. Here are some things that might come up, and here's how you defend yourself against those accusations.
0: said the Husband community wasn't for you although you had positions of different organizations and free trips yeah. and you know all of the all of the trimmings of the like organized jewish community kind of like throwing money at like campuses but you made a conscious decision to go to Brit to, to get involved in, in this work so why what drew you
1: I mean, I could talk about the first time that we met and, mm-hmm. like, what it was that you had said. Because you were brought onto my trip mm-hmm. as, like, the crazy radical Hebron settler with the big keeper and the crazy thoughts and, like, oh, my God, like, look at what exists. Because they like to say that they show you to a wide spectrum of different viewpoints. And in so doing, they are suggesting that there's a crazy radical, you know, side. And there's a... On, on, probably on both ends. Mm-hmm. And you were... Brought to represent
0: that. Okay. Was that the only person brought to represent that, or they had a few? I don't remember. It was just okay. like Ten years ago. <laughs> right, right, right.
1: Um, you were the only one that I friended on Facebook. If that means anything. You. Okay. Um, I remember that being in Chevron and like hearing what was supposed to be a radical, crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were certain points I think that you had that resonated with me, and I think that it probably was true for a couple other participants. Um, so where people, and I think that like when you're itching for a, a deeper answer to hard questions your antennae are like you know searching for those kinds of more nuanced ideas and when you gave it I wanted to hear more and I think that the same thing could have happened for other students when they heard from you know an if not now speaker if they were looking for something deeper but I think that those kinds of speakers are offering that but you have to be listening for it
0: okay and a lot of the students on your trip weren't listening for it
1: no they were willing to accept you as the crazy the, radical the way i was Zettler. and that's yeah. how i was
0: contextualized totally mm-hmm.
1: and i yeah i think that, that would be very easy to be like okay like we're going in cuz that's how it was framed you know like the same the way that you're framed i think puts people in a certain mentality of like this is how i'm supposed to hear what he's saying and then every point that you said after they had introduced you as such was obviously going to fall within that context
0: mm-hmm. i didn't realize i was introduced as anything you know
1: I mean, when you go to Hebron, there are also like, aside from just the fact that you are introduced that way, I think that putting you in that city where there are all these like new security concerns that are presented, where there are visceral senses of tension and heightened mm-hmm. concern, regard, like all those things, having you be there, like you were put there on purpose. Like your crazy keeper looks crazier when it's up again, like when it's put in this like visually tense context. Right. If had you been in the Beit Knesset, it would have been different. You know what I mean? Not in the Beit Knesset in but like if you like had been, or if you had been in like the conference room at our hotel, like it would have been different. There's a reason they put you there. And so aside from just introducing you as such, like, we got there on a bulletproof bus. Like you know what I mean? Like there are all these different subtle indications of how you're supposed to be digested
0: yeah i suppose and you know so it's nice that you reached out afterwards got involved
1: yeah no i think that it, you have to be listening though for those things and looking for them in order to find meaning in them or to find significance in them and to not just dismiss them as further it, indications you're saying
0: the deck was stacked against me
1: yes i am definitely saying that but i also think that it makes it easy for those people who are satisfied with the Hasbro industry to Mm. dismiss you Mm. as being what they wanted you to be seen as.
0: So they can be the good guys. They get to be the moderate Jews.
1: Yeah, and there's a reason they put you on there. I mean, it does give weight or it gives, like, I don't know, credibility to their organization to say, we look at how many different viewpoints we show, but how much credibility is that when you're showing them this viewpoint in the context of, look how crazy this viewpoint is.
0: Mm It's funny. So the last time, you know, so when I spoke to your group, this is like 2011, I spoke to your group in Hebron, I must have said something, well, I must have said something that lit a fire in you, but I also said something, it might have been the same something, that caused them not to bring me back to speak again. Like it was, I was kind of like banned from that organization. Until recently, where I think there was a leadership turnover, Uh, and suddenly it was like, okay, now because he's saying something valuable that students need to hear. So I think there is an increased awareness. I think the things that made me scary to a lot of these organizations ten years ago are now ma- giving me some kind of value. Mm-hmm. Because well,
1: maybe they're seeing that what they were doing wasn't working. <laughs>
0: right, and that might be part of the like leadership turnover of people who were involved as students on campuses having to actually engage with other students and, and, and have these conversations realize that they weren't being well equipped, whereas they see people like you or, you know who yeah. were on campus representing us being better at it.
1: Not only that, but also like I think it's really hard. I remember when I, even when I was on campus and it's kind of your job when you're the president of the organization or an employee of one of these institutions to find the next one and it was very hard to find a student who was willing to say the silly things that they were making me say. Mm-hmm. And I'm paying them to say it. Like, and they don't even want to do it for money. Like, mm-hmm. that's not a good sign.
0: Like, What kind of silly things do they make you say?
1: Like, when people are talking about like, you know, tremendous violations of human rights and violations of international law and things like that and I have to, because I'm being paid to, talk about the cherry tomato. Like, it's embarrassing, like I'd rather not. And like, <laughs> There's a certain amount of, like I'm on a college campus and yeah, I'm broke and willing to do a lot for a free meal, but it's embarrassing and also like it's social suicide. (laughs) Like I would honestly, I would invite like my parents or friends from high school before I would invite my college friends to the events that I was forced to put on because God forbid someone should know that like I'm doing this silly event. Like it's embarrassing.
0: It's embarrassing just with the activist community or anyone
1: probably both because it's goofy like Mm -hmm. somebody might understand that i'm doing it like because it's my job Mm -hmm. or they might expect it because they know that i'm jewish so like of course like she's part of the like pro-israel community whatever but i'm like just praying that they dismiss it as such which is not a good position to be in Mm -hmm. god forbid they should think that i really think that this is like a good position to hold you know wow And I think that's how a lot of the students felt, and I was willing to do it, which is more than I can say for other students.
0: Mm -hmm. So it could be that now the Israel advocacy community is self-correcting and... Well,
1: if I was a campus coordinator now, which I'm not, but if I was a campus coordinator, I certainly wouldn't suggest, not only because it doesn't work, but also because I understand the position that you're asking your students to be in. And also you're asking them to be very disingenuous and, like, knowingly so. So, like, what are the chances that beyond the time that you're paying them to do it, they're going to keep feeling this way? Mm -hmm. If anything, they're going to have a salty taste in their mouth from having had to do this silly, or fulfill this silly position, and never providing them with something more substantial.
0: Right, so maybe that's what's missing. I mean, ultimately that is what's missing, because a lot of the shallow and irrelevant talking points might be symptoms of a lack of actual substance, a lack of totally. actual like thinking, what are the goals of Jewish history, what are we fighting for, what are the challenges confronting the Jewish people today, uh, what are we trying to overcome, beyond like people saying mean things about Israel or beyond, you know, people criticizing Israeli policies or, you know, or or questioning Israel's right to exist.
1: Yeah. But what if four years from now, I've been a Hasbara, like in theory, I've been a Hasbarat fellow, I've been a Sanders fellow, whatever, all those things, and I walk away thinking that the best defense we have is what they gave me. You know? Like, that was the education that I got, that's what I'm walking away with. Right. Like, Did that, that, the that... best, like, argument we can come up with is the cherry tomato. Well,
0: don't what... judge. Are, are they really only talking about cherry tomatoes, no, they're also
1: talking about gay pride parades. Uh-huh. And, like, if that's not only what we're saying that these students should say to other people, but what, what we're communicating to them is our best argument, they're walking away thinking that that's the most I don't know, the most legitimizing feature of Israel is the fact that they contributed to, you know, making a really small tomato.
0: Don't, th- I mean, I'm sure that these organizations, I've seen that these organizations do actually talk about the conflict, do actually talk about, you I know. think they
1: very, I mean, and they might have changed, I'm sure it has, in mm-hmm. the, since the 10 years ago that I was filling this position. But, I mean, when we would talk about things that were related to human rights, it would be very removed from the conflict. It would be like, yeah, but look, like, gay people have rights here. Or look, like, we had a female prime minister before, like, like those kinds of things, and that's great.
0: Nothing with Palestinians. it has
1: nothing to do with what we're talking about, you know? And you're not empowering anyone new, you're just saying, look what we did. Mm -hmm. You're not fighting for justice, you're not fighting for anything, really. You're just saying, like, we deserve to exist because of this thing that we did. That's not the conversation that people are having.
0: Okay, is there any advice you would give to people who want to fight for Israel on campus and, and need an outlet?
1: I would say that it's the, the truly tragic aspect of this entire thing is that, like I said, you're walking away thinking this is the best argument we have, and that's just not the case. Like The, Jewish, the story of Jewish history is a really amazing one, and you're missing it by focusing on these weird things that you've decided are important, and it, you're suggesting that that's the crux of the matter when it's totally Mm -hmm. not. You're missing so much. So I think that if someone was looking for more, um, I would suggest just educating yourself about Jewish history and identity beyond those talking points. Because there is a really great history and story to be learned.
0: And that we can participate in. Yeah. Like meaning that we actually are living in one of the most amazing and climactic chapters of Jewish history. Yeah. Like I
1: said, you don't have to focus on what we've done so far to legitimize ourselves. You can talk about also the justice that we are fighting for. Mm. But you have to also believe it. I think that you all, like, that's a super important point. Like, I didn't care about the, oh, this is going to sound, that was, that is going to end poorly. But not to say I don't care about gay rights, but that wasn't something that I personally was, like, thinking is a legitimizing point for the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm saying it, I'm saying it kind of tongue-in-cheek. Like, I know that this is, like, I'm regurgitating talking points. And I think that one of the values of knowing the story and knowing the history and being excited about the prospects of future achievements, it comes across as sincere because it is, because you are excited about it, because you've internalized it. And I don't think you need talking points when you've internalized the story. Mm-hmm. You can talk from like how you genuinely feel about it.
0: Uh-huh. And you don't feel that the Israel Advocacy community is, is doing much of that. It's no. like training students. To... <laughs> so, so the answer is really real education.
1: Yeah. And I think that you don't have to worry about students not being able to memorize long paragraphs because they shouldn't be memorizing things. They should be internalizing what they have learned, mm-hmm. and then articulating in a way that's sincere and organic how right. they are
0: like everyone else.
1: It. Yeah, that's literally what everyone else is doing, yeah.
0: So why not? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thanks for sharing. That was really interesting. This is, Thank uh, you for having me. I think it gives me a lot to think about. And uh, again, if uh, people like the show, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review. It helps us reach more people, helps us get these ideas out there. Uh, Lea and Essia, always happy to have you on.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. And don't forget to head over to Vision Magazine to check out our show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage four, if you want to go a little deeper into this episode. We'll be back again in two weeks. Be sure to tune in. This is Yudah Cohen on the next stage, Vision Magazine, Brit Chazon.